I tried talking to my mom about it and like, bless her heart. Like she looked at me and was like, well, look, like she, you know, she looked at me, she looked at my little brother and she was like, you are not the same. Like he's, he's got ADHD. Like he checks all the boxes. Like, yep. And she was like, I think you're just really depressed and anxious. Hello, and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. The following is a review on the Apple podcast platform in Australia from a listener called Sensitivity is Good. It's called A Weight Off My Shoulders. Thanks a million, Katie, for helping lift a huge weight off my shoulders. Your excellent podcast has lifted my spirits immensely. Hearing the conversations with ADHD women of all ages has stopped my self-judgment in its tracks and got me giggling along as I identify with the funny things we all seem to do. The biggest relief of my late ADHD discovery is that I finally have the answer to a question that's nagged me for 30 years. A friend once asked me, how can someone so talented still be struggling? And after accepting the compliment, I thought to myself, yeah, how come? The work you're doing here is gold. Well, what a lovely sentiment. Thank you so much. I am so glad you found this podcast and that these conversations have been helping to alleviate some of that self-judgment. I asked myself that same question for years, and you're right. It feels so good to know that we are not alone in this. For those of you who've been listening to this podcast and have found it helpful, please take a moment to leave a review either on the Apple Podcast app or on Amazon or Audible. Your reviews help so much in getting this podcast noticed by other women who might be searching for more information about their ADHD and what it looks like in women and could really benefit from hearing these interviews and feeling like they're not alone. And of course, I love reading each and every one of them. Okay, here we are at episode 64, in which I interview Reagan Cotton. Reagan is 25 years old and lives in Denver. She works for the political advocacy nonprofit New Era Colorado. Reagan actually reached out to me because she is a listener of the podcast and noted that a lot of my guests are older and she felt she could offer an interesting perspective on what it is like to be facing ADHD in early adulthood at this particular moment in history. Reagan was born in 1996, so she is literally right on the dividing line between millennial and Gen Z. And we talk about the various assumptions and stigmas that were held around ADHD and mental health as she was growing up and how some of them might have differed from older generations like mine. We also talk about what it's like to get this diagnosis during the pandemic as a young adult, as well as the various ways ADHD is still being overlooked and dismissed in girls and young women. I really appreciated and enjoyed Reagan's perspective, and I'm sure you will too. Enjoy. Yeah, I was really interested when you reached out to me because it's true. I I interview guests, you know, I started this podcast because I was diagnosed at the age of 45 and so I like looked out uh, looked back at the span of my life through motherhood and and university and babies and it was just like ADHD everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so yeah, like I have a tendency to interview a lot of women who are in the same position as me. Oh, and perimenopause. Like it's just, you know, this whole long laundry list of all of these ways in which it manifests itself. And so I'm always, I love whenever I hear, you know, women in their twenties are listening to the podcast and relating too, because I feel like it's my gift to you, right? I'm like, (laughs) if you can avoid the 20 years of depression and anxiety and, and questioning that some of us went through, I feel like that would be so wonderful. Wonderful. Um, so when you reached out to me and you were like, you know, I feel like generationally, there's a lot of interesting 
you know, you just, I feel like you have a lot of thoughts and I want to hear about them because yeah. I think it is um, super interesting to kind of find out what it's like. I, um, you know, I have had guests who were diagnosed in their twenties, but just sort of what mm-hmm. it's like in the moment and also with what we know. Cause often when I, inter- often when I, um, when I interview women who were diagnosed either in childhood or in high school or in, or in even in their twenties, that was 20 years ago. And, and it yeah. still felt like, even if you were diagnosed, it didn't matter because nobody knew anything about ADHD or what it looked like mm-hmm. in women. And we're only just really coming to like a, an explosion in terms of our understanding about what it is and, and yep. what no, it looks like sure. and how different it is for women and men. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So I can't wait. Um, so let's get started. Uh, first of all, Thank I want to hear about your, uh, I want to hear about your diagnosis and when, um, you were diagnosed and kind of what was going on for you that led you to think maybe this is ADHD. For sure. There's like, I know, I feel like for all of us, there's like so much to it. It's hard <laughs> to even get it into one, uh, one kind of snapshot, but yeah, like you were saying, so I'm I'm 25 now. I was diagnosed when I was 24. Um, it's been interesting for sure growing up like undiagnosed. And I think actually really the most interesting thing is that I have two younger brothers. Um, one of them is two years younger than me. And he was diagnosed pretty much right off the bat when he was like, I don't know, 12. Um, he started having a lot of like academic problems and it just was like, all right, let's, let's get him tested. Let's do all the stuff. And I mean, in a lot of ways, like he is and was like the stereotype of like, you know, when you say, oh, you get this ADHD diagnosis, you think of the little boy climbing around on the walls. Like that was never me. That was my brother. (laughs) So, you know, it was pretty easy, I guess, to just see that and be like, uh, like for the people around us, for students, uh, or sorry, for teachers around us and, and like our, kind of community to just be like, Oh, yep. Done ADHD. And then like, I kind of was two years older. I did not get, um, any of that recognition or like awareness really at all. Um, until I kind of sought it out on my own when I was really struggling, um, at a later time in my life, but yeah, it's, it's been definitely interesting. So I actually in high school, well, I should go back a bit. I, have always been told, you know, oh, you're so smart. Like you're so capable. You're so this and that. And I've always in a way like known that, but I've also never really felt like I've been successful in the ways that I want to be successful. And I've like never really been a good student academically, like just not, (laughs) you know, in a way that I think when you like talk to neurotypical people and you're like, oh, I wasn't a good student. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we all get in no, like I was really not a good student. Like, I don't think y'all, uh, y'all know what, what I'm saying. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just was really struggling in school, but I always kind of got by, like, I don't know if it's because of my gender. I don't know if it's because I was like, just kind of more quiet and, and reserved where I kind of flew under the radar in a lot of ways that I was struggling. Um, honestly, I, in middle school, I started like copying homework off of my peers and like really just kind of trying to get through in whatever way that I could without like letting anyone know that like I I mean I didn't even know I was struggling I just couldn't do it I just was like I'm trying to keep doing these things that everybody says you have to do to be successful and like I I didn't know how to do that so I was just trying to figure it out kind of the best way that I could always and you know it's so funny because like looking back I totally would sit in class and like 
talk to like the boy next to me. And then the teacher would come around and be like, Hey, like James, stop talking. Like you're distracting Reagan. And it was like very often that they would not see me as like the troublemaker kind of, because I was generally pretty quiet and reserved, but then I'd be like bouncing off the walls, you know, like talking to the students next to me, but they just, they wouldn't expect it. So that was kind of interesting always. And, uh, you know, there's like a hundred examples of things that I messed up and didn't like succeed in, in the academic world, um, growing up. And just, I feel like I never read a single book that we were supposed to read through high school. Like I just (laughs) would like listen in class when they were discussing the, like the book report or whatever. And I would get through somehow and I would understand the big picture enough that I could like figure it out, connect the symbolism and kind of just make it through. So, I mean, I don't know, you know, I think that's a pretty ADHD thing, but definitely had some funky coping mechanisms always. And so then in high school, I was like really struggling. I couldn't really get by with my kind of sneaky coping mechanisms that I now know are coping mechanisms as well. Um, I was struggling a lot more academically, but like still in the case that I was getting by. I was getting B's, C's, even though I was like, I was like failing tests, but then I do all the homework. So then I like got all the points to like, get me to this kind of average, you know, fly under the radar, but I was really struggling. I was struggling with depression. I was struggling with anxiety. My anxiety got really bad when I was in high school, like out of control. I, I felt like I could not function. I couldn't do anything. And it was at that time that, I mean, I was like going at it with my mom all the time. Like my room was a mess. Like I could not keep it clean and just like really struggling with like day-to-day things outside of um, school and like the things that my peers were doing, like applying for colleges was like really not something I even knew how to do or like what to do. And I did have a lot of support, but it was just really, it became really difficult. Um, And I actually thought like, I believe it was like my senior year of high school, once I did start getting like treatment for my depression and anxiety, I was seeing a therapist at the time. And I kind of was like, I think independently, I was like, I think I have ADHD. Like I really cannot do a lot of these school things. And at the time I was really just thinking of, you know, kind of the main first thoughts that people think folks with ADHD struggle with like school, you know, and then when you get older, like work, but I had no awareness of like the emotional regulation, like the kind of greater sensory overwhelm things at the time. So I was just saying like, I really can't do school. I'm really struggling. I don't know what to do. Um, I tried talking to my mom about it and like, you know, bless her heart. Like she looked at me and was like, well, look, like she, you know, she looked at me, she looked at my little brother and she was like, you are not the same. Like, he's, he's got ADHD. Like he checks all the boxes, like, yep. And she was like, I think you're just really depressed and anxious. Like, and then was kind of just like hesitant. And so then I really didn't know. And I obviously didn't know that there were gender differences. I didn't really like look into it too much. It was just one of these like fleeting things. Um, and so then we, I went to my psychiatrist And my mom came with me and we had like a discussion about like, do you have ADHD? And basically they were kind of like, maybe like, eh, you know, like my, my, my mom just kept being like, you know, like you are not this running around, like you don't have these things. You do not check these boxes. Like you're different, you know, you're intense. Like there were these other terms used 
but really it kind of was like chalked up to depression, anxiety. Um, the psychiatrist did give me one prescription. Like she was like, well, let's just, let's just see how it goes for, um, Ritalin. And I remember I took it like once, maybe twice. Um, and it made me feel so sick. Like I had such bad side effects that I just was like, I can't do this. Like, no. And I never took it again. And then was your brother medicated? continued on. He was on and off, but not really ever consistently. Um, he really didn't get a ton of treatment in that realm. I think he's doing a lot more now as he's gotten older, but his support came more in the sense of like, he was transitioned to a smaller private school um, with much smaller classes and like a lot more um, teacher attention and teacher mm-hmm. focus. Whereas mm-hmm. I was, you know, I like to say the guinea pig, I was the oldest. Um, I was enrolled in our big, bigger public high school where I was a number, not a name, like teachers didn't really know me that well. And I, I could fly under the radar. And so that's kind of what I did. And my brother got support in different ways, like academic, uh, you know, changing schools. Whereas I was like a junior at that point, it would have been a lot for me to change schools. And I didn't really want to, honestly, it would have disrupted everything, but yeah, uh, not really like dabbled in it, tried it, but I don't think he was ever truly medicated in like a consistent way. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it was, it was fascinating. Um, okay. So then, so you, you went to the psychiatrist and they thought, okay, you might have ADHD. Maybe what, what then happened? Yeah. It was kind of like a, well, we'll give it a shot. Like, I don't know. It was a oh, bizarre right. That's where we were. Sorry. The Ritalin. No, <laughs> so you took good. the Ritalin and you, it didn't feel, you, you made you feel nauseous or yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then I went off to college and I was super busy. I, I moved from um, Southern California to Denver, Colorado, where I live now to go to school. Um, and yeah, I just kind of was like thrown into college and kind of forgot about the ADHD thing. You know, I was definitely still struggling with depression, anxiety, um, but it's really hard to get treatment for that when you're a college student, even on campus. I remember like if they were going to continue prescribing me my antidepressants that I was taking, it was $110 copay every time. And they made you go every like month to check in. And I didn't have the time, didn't have the money. Like that was half my paycheck, you know? Um, so I kind of just stopped, let it all go, powered through college. Um, definitely. I definitely like loved my classes. I know that that's like definitely an ADHD thing, (laughs) but I started studying criminology and within sociology and political science and psychology. And I just got like, so sucked in. Um, I loved it. I still love it. I wish I could go back and just do school like that forever, but only take the classes that I want to take and the ones that are interesting to me. And if you look at my GPA for like my common core classes, ones you have to take, and then the ones that I chose to take, it's like worlds apart. I mean, you could just see it. It was like C minus C versus like I was doing really well in my other classes where I could write and read. And I know I could always do that with attendance too, right? Like the classes yes, I loved, yes, I would be yes. there no matter what time of day it was. And then the classes I, that you could tell I was just like desperately trying not to flunk. I yep. <laughs> never yeah. go to. Just yeah. got by. Exactly. So yeah, that was that. And um, I definitely like struggled. There's a ton of ways that I could 
<laughs> like when you, one of the questions you asked, like, what are some of the things that you look back and see were definitely ADHD? Like in college, I wrote this paper one time. Obviously I wrote it the night before it was due. I misread the prompt. I missed a key detail that said like, you know, pick one example and, and write your paper about this. And I missed that. I picked, I think two or three, and I structured my paper around like two or three different things. And the professor, I remember wrote like, you didn't follow the prompt too bad. It's a really good paper C. And Uh. I just remember being like, what? Like first I was so mad. I was like, what is he talking about? And then of course I reread the prompt and I'm like, it says one, like write one example. Like what, what the heck, like what is wrong with me? You know? So there's like a ton of examples like that, um, that just stand out through college. And, you know, I I did make it through, like, I'm very grateful (laughs) for that, but, um, yeah, then, what, I guess mid-2020 or beginning of 2020, I was having a lot of trouble, like, with depression, anxiety, and I don't know know why. (laughs) Untreated ADHD amidst general chaos. So, yeah, that's kind of where I was, like, I'm really struggling. Like, I was stuck in my house all the time. I'm working remote. I do love my job, but I'm, like, oh, my gosh, I'm just stuck in my house. There is so much going on. Just, it feels like everything's compounding. Um, I had a lot of family stuff going on at the time. And so I just, I was really feeling out of control, like in a way that I hadn't felt since probably high school when I was at my worst mental health space. And I was like, you know, took a lot of time, took a lot of dealing with insurance and figuring out online, like how to get help. But then I, got connected with a therapist and pretty early, like I think at our intake, she kind of was like picking up on some things and was like, have you ever like considered ADHD? Like, and I explained, you know, oh, in high school it was dabbled with, but never really, nothing came of it. She was like, let's just do this uh, quick exam, like this quick assessment. And I mean, I checked literally all the boxes, like, And I didn't, I, even then I still was like, oh, okay. I like continued on. And it wasn't until like a few weeks later where I just was like, oh my gosh, like everything makes sense. Like, this is it. Like, oh my gosh. And she was the one that introduced me to like, look like women, like femme presenting people, like do a lot to hide this and do a lot to uh, display like these traits differently than men. And that's kind of your stereotype. So that led to, that led to my diagnosis. Everything in the world suddenly made sense. I had a full night of like maniacally journaling, just like, and this thing, like recounting my entire life, you know, being like, and this thing happened. Oh my gosh. And the laundry, like, and this, <laughs> ah, that's why I can't do this thing in the morning. Like I could never do anything in the morning. And I just, I never knew, like, that was a thing. I always was like, I can't work in the morning. Like I can't do it. I need some time to warm up, like more time than other people need. So yeah, that's what led to my diagnosis. And it's honestly changed everything in my life. That's amazing. I love hearing stories when, when, you know, when a therapist either suggests it or is like fully on board. Cause I feel like there's so many stories where women are like, no, I was, they, they think I'm just depressed and anxious. And I was like, if a therapist is not willing to see the connection between 
a life of depression and anxiety and being undiagnosed, like, then they, you need a, you yeah. need a second opinion because it's yeah. just like, you know, even when you were talking about, um, going with your mom and like that idea that like, well, you don't exhibit these hyperactive, um, symptoms that your brother did. So maybe you're just depressed and anxious. And it was like, no, there's no such thing as being just depressed. <laughs> like yeah. you have to figure out what the source is. And it, with so many of us, it was this fact that, like we felt like we didn't know what was wrong with us. Or like you were saying, like, I just can't do the thing. And it's not like I don't want to. It's not like I, you know, don't feel like it. Like there's a legitimate paralysis there that is really, really difficult to articulate. Yeah. Yeah. And not knowing if like, I'm like, am I making this up? Like, is this, am I lazy? You know, like, why can't I do this? Just that feeling of like, why can't I do this? Like yeah. what is happening for and sure. then also like, well, and just, you know, also I think your story is so similar to so many of us in terms of like you, it's never noticed in, uh, with teachers, if you're not being disruptive, right. Which, so, you know, if you are not, um, jumping around, if you're not like, you know, kicking chairs or doing whatever, annoying the teacher, then why would the teacher bother to, to suggest it or even diagnose it? Like all of those diagnoses in boys when they're kids is because they were disruptive. And so the teacher's like, we need to fix this. Uh, we need to make this person less disruptive. And girls mm -hmm. are so much more inclined to um, be likable, right? And and to try to like exactly. behave. So I thought it was interesting when you told the anecdote about the boy who got in trouble. Oh, I <laughs> could think, think of like so many times. Gender, yeah. um, um, gender stereotyping right there. Yeah. They're like, oh, you're distracting Reagan. Like, um, she's trying to work. Like now I'm looking back like, oh my gosh, like what did yeah. I do? I know. I didn't even realize that until after my diagnosis, how many times I was separated from the group in elementary school mm. and middle school where like, we'd be in these like desk clusters and my teacher would pull my desk away or I'd have to sit all uh. by myself or I'd have to sit next to the teacher's desk as punishment because I was always talking. And I was like, oh, like I never would have remembered I never would have remembered that if I hadn't been like thinking back about like what yeah. were the signs when I was a kid what an isolating feeling too as a kid to be like oh I've been pulled aside and you know I gotta sit by the teacher like that's not a good feeling oh I know oh don't even get me started yeah <laughs> not good. Uh, and then also that that stereotype I think we fall into a lot which is like you can't possibly have ADHD because you have good grades you know or like this this reinforcement of the stereotype that ADHD only happens to people who are like a total hot mess on the outside and you know demonstrably a hot mess whereas so many of us do really well in school and so many of us do really well in our jobs and we actually mm -hmm. are quite high functioning. And so mm -hmm. people say you can't possibly have ADHD and you're like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, that's what you're seeing. There's the, that's just the iceberg, you know, like the iceberg analogy yeah. of just like, you don't understand what's going on behind the scenes. <laughs> Absolutely. I really felt that even when I was given the diagnosis, like I had so much doubt of like, is this a thing that I'm putting on for myself? Like, am I just saying that I have ADHD to, to like make myself feel better, like say that, you know, this isn't my fault and to like dismiss that blame. Um, and, you know, really like, I think I brought that to my therapist. She was like, Reagan, I think she could tell I was spiraling in the way that like we ADHDers do where we're like minimizing our own stuff. She was oh, like, absolutely. if it helps, I'm, I'm a professional here. Like 
you have ADHD. Uh, you don't need to say that you're putting this on yourself. Like this is a confirmed thing so we can like move on and, and kind of that like validation just helps so much to be like, you are not crazy. Like this is, mm-hmm. this is real. Um, don't talk yourself out of it. Like don't minimize what you've gone through and what is real. Yeah. Right. I try to remind myself of that all the time, which like that impulse to that, that impulse to self-doubt, that constant questioning, and then the Mm -hmm. subsequent minimizing, like that is the ADHD talking all of that. Exactly. Exactly. I'd like to take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know I am a big proponent of therapy. Therapy provides me the best opportunity for verbal processing, something that is so important for my kind of brain and my sense of self. What I love about BetterHelp is that it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy that's done securely online from the comfort of your home. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And it's available for clients worldwide. So you get access to a broad range of expertise that might not be available to you locally. It also tends to be more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. If you visit their website and read their testimonials, there are actually quite a few reviews that specifically reference help with ADHD. As a special offer for listeners of the Women and ADHD podcast, you'll get 10% off your first month. Simply sign up at betterhelp.com slash women ADHD. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash women ADHD. And there's a link in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Um, okay. So now you talked a little bit about how life has changed since your diagnosis. I feel like we have that, you know, that emotional roller coaster of like, Mm -hmm. Oh my God, this explains everything. Um, but then also followed by like, wait a minute, I'm still in isolation. I'm still in the pandemic. I still can't work in the morning or all of Uh these like ways in which you now have to kind of, uh, manage what, what you now understand as ADHD. Mm -hmm. How do you think, how do you feel like life has changed for you? since your diagnosis? Yeah, it's changed a lot, honestly, just having that awareness, like being able to tap in and recognize like what is happening as it's happening. Um, Specifically with like being overstimulated has helped me so much recognizing like, you know, I would come over to my partner's house after a long day and I'd get to his place and he's watching like a football game or something or a game. And I'm trying to talk to him and like the game is on in the background and like we're the dog is running around and we're trying to figure out dinner. And I would just like freak out sometimes. And then he'd be like, what is like, are you good? And I was like, it's loud. Like, but I never really knew why that was the case. And so it was hard for both of us. Um, And now I guess recognizing that, like I'm able to be like, okay, like I can support him in doing the things that he wants to do and like remove myself or even have that anticipation of like, this might be a little overwhelming and I know why. And I can um, use that to kind of like better mediate the situation to prevent me from getting past that threshold. Um, That's been really helpful with like the emotional regulation piece and just knowing I get stressed when there's weird noises. I can't talk when the TV's on or, you know, this or that is happening. Um, That has helped immensely. I'll also say I am now medicated, not not with the Ritalin that made me sick, but um, it has helped so much. And what are you taking instead? Yeah, I take Vyvanse now. Okay. 
And it's been much better, much, much, much better. We, I had a lot of support from my psychiatrist and my therapist, which has really helped me because I had a lot of apprehensions about taking this medication. I think that's another thing, like growing up and, and being the age that I am and growing up when I grew up, like I had such a stigma around medications and I still have some anxiety, but I like to think it's a healthy anxiety. Um, but just growing up and being like, you know, seeing my peers abusing this, like this, yeah, I'm hearing it in the news and you're seeing articles on like that this medication is being abused and it's being over, um, administered. And, you know, I don't really know the details on all that, but I know that I saw my peers in college and, and even high school, like abusing this medication and, and using it to like become like a superhero and all this stuff. And so I was like very scared to take it as like always been a rule follower and also knowing I can be really impulsive of like, is this what I really want to introduce in my life? Like what type of uh, like crutch is this going to be? Mm-hmm. And how could this like spiral out and create more problems in my life when I don't want that? But it's helped so much. Yeah. Well, and also we have addictive personalities and tend it's, to self-medicate. Exactly. <laughs> I've never smoked a cigarette because I know I cannot <laughs> smoke a cigarette. You know what I mean? There's not like, just one. I've, yeah. I've never let myself do it once. And so I definitely have that addictive personality that I think is quite uh, not, not alone in that. Um, but really like talking with those professionals and understanding like, this is like true support. Like people take medication for all different reasons, like working through that stigma, um, knowing that I like have professionals supporting me who like they're, you know, they're going to know if if things go out of hand, like that's, that's their job. Um, they've got my back and like, that feels really good just to lessen that personal anxiety. And then also like, I believe it was my therapist was like, look, Reagan, like, even if you want to take this for, if you take this for a year, that's what you decide is the best thing. Like really the goal is to like have enough space in your brain to build the tools, to build the practices and like the coping mechanisms and strategies that are going to be healthy. And if you use this to support you through that, um, then, you know, we could revisit, like, obviously I was, I can always decide to, to stop or, or change. I have tons of agency in that way, but just being like, look, after a year, you can say, I don't want to take this medication anymore. And you're probably still going to be way better off because like I'm working with this therapist, we're um, working on skills, we're working on that regulation and like having the space to implement and actually build these practices into habits has been so, so helpful. So that's definitely changed in a, in a really good way. Yeah. I love that. That's a great perspective too. Um, Cause I, I feel like my, um, you know, I've talked about this with other guests of my history with uh, antidepressants was always sort of feeling, Mm -hmm. I would get trapped in that cycle of like, this medication doesn't feel like it's working. So let's up the dose. And then I would have that constant questioning, which is like, okay, if this is how bad I feel on the medication, imagine how bad I'll feel off the medication. And so that I have to keep upping the dose and never being like, maybe this is the wrong medication, but just, I guess, always feeling like so much mental real estate was taken up wondering if the medication was working. And then I'd be like, you know what, maybe it's just easier to go off everything Mm -hmm. and start from, Mm -hmm. you know, start from scratch and like, what's my baseline. And so I like the fact that you are, you know, the, you're the handholding that you're getting from your therapist. And just in terms of like, 
this medication is supposed to free up that mental space mm-hmm. as opposed to making yep. it feel even more crowded, which is what I sometimes think exactly. medication does. <laughs> yep. I had the same experience when I was in college taking antidepressants as well too, like very much the same. And I was just like, I'm done for like a lot of reasons. Like the finances were some, the time, the energy, all of it. I was just like, I can't do this. Um, I stopped and you know, it, it was what I had to do at that time. And I think it really got me to where I am now, but I do wish I had more support uh, at that time. Well, and then you think about, you know, the, the quote unquote abuse of, um, stimulants, right. With Mm -hmm. in college, especially, and how it's gotten this reputation of being this controlled substance and it's so expensive Mm -hmm. and like the way in which it seems to be going, it seems to be splintering off from like SSRIs and antidepressants. Like when like antidepressants are so easy to get, they're like pennies, pennies, a bottle uh, compared to the expense that so many of us, especially in the U S are experiencing with, with these um, with stimulants, right? Like it blows my mind, the, the hurdles that we have to go through in order to get this Mm -hmm. medication and the overwhelming expense. So many of us have, to have this medication. Um, like, I don't know what I'm getting at. I guess just the stigma that is rising with, um, stimulants and it's the, the, the stigma is from the fact that it's being abused. Right. And I don't think it's necessarily being abused. I think it's just being used in, in Absolutely. A, a, like, in a way in which like, if it was more available, if it was more widely available or if, or if young people understood the you know, what was happening and that this was helpful to them. Like, yes, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I feel like I'm no, not articulating I it well. Where like, nobody's using it. The narrative is what I had always held and yeah. seen as being so problematic. Like you're absolutely right. Um, but you're right. We fear it. We think it's like scarcity. Cocaine. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, even just thinking like of being on a college campus and, and how, drugs, various drugs are more or less acceptable. Like the social implications of that, like the racial implications, the, the history of different medications and where they come about and who is allowed to have what is, is fascinating to me. Um, but just the narrative was a big thing just growing up and being like, Oh, that's like meth. Like they're giving kids meth. And that's what I grew up hearing. So then it's like, I'm in high school struggling and I'm like, I don't want to take meth. Like what? That That's not going to help me. Mm-hmm. And having to really unpack that and be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, this is not where we are. This is not what it is. And that was definitely the case. Yeah. Hmm. Any other parents out there who have struggled to instill good financial habits into their kids? I know I have. And that's why I'm so excited to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Go Henry by Acorns, the smart debit card and app for kids 6 through 18. With Go Henry, kids can learn about money, set spending and saving goals, and even track chores and earn allowance money right within the app. They learn the value of money by using their Go Henry debit cards, while we as parents can set spend limits and help guide their journey while staying informed every step of the way. It gives me so much peace of mind to know that I'm using a smart tool to proactively teach my kids about money and prepare them for future success. Set your kids up for success and get started today at gohenry.com slash women ADHD. Again, that's gohenry.com slash women ADHD. 
TNCs apply. Renews from $4.99 per month unless canceled. All right. So then, yeah, what other kind of observations do you have in terms of Gen Z, millennial, Gen? I guess you're still millennial, right? Gen Z is. <laughs> yeah. Gen Z I, is I don't still know. younger. I feel like millennial is a huge category. I know I'm on the cusp. I was born in 96. So I never know where I fall in that, but I'm definitely straddling a weird line. Um, I think, I think really that the gender difference comes with just omitting in what we think about ADHD as just omitting the like emotional regulation, omitting um, the non like, school and work pieces are the things like I see it as, as like, I don't know how to articulate this, but just when you're struggling in like school or you're struggling in work for some reason, like that is much more accepted and like validated, Mm. um, than struggling with those emotional and like interpersonal kinds of things. And I think in a lot of ways, like that has led to, I mean, there's a ton of reasons why men are, are diagnosed more than women, but I think it's like, oh, if there's a man struggling with work or with school, like that's a big problem. We need to be sure that that person is getting a lot of support. Um, not really considering like, you know, that, of course, men have emotional regulation problems too. And and those are valid and need to be treated as well. And then, you know, we have women on the other side who we're going to go through way greater lengths to still succeed in these academic and like traditionally, you know, male masculine dominated spaces. We're doing a lot more to get through and to be seen as successful. But when we're struggling with our mental health, like that is not that's not validated. That's, that's, oh, you're depressed or you're anxious. And there's not this urgency of like, oh my gosh, why are all of these women struggling? Why are all these people struggling? And it's really like what we as a society prioritize and, you know, that's doing well in school, that's doing well in, in work and really is dismissive of the fact that we're all people with like very wide scopes of life. And, you know, we're more than our like capitalistic output we we have merit in and of ourselves and our our health and our well-being and that healing is so important so I think that's kind of a big thing that I've seen just um in those gender differences Mm -hmm. yeah and I think you know your generation has the crippling student debt absolutely (laughs) which you know so you have that butting up against the overwhelming pressure to like succeed in your 20s and because you're seeing all of these like social media influencers and tiktok Mm -hmm. influencers who are you know making piles of money at such a young age and it's i feel like there's you know the pressure is much greater on your generation in terms of like success at a young age Mm -hmm. when the, um, it's just impossible. I mean, like the, you have, you still have to go, you still have to get a college education. Um, but then you end up with crippling debt for the rest of your life as a result. (laughs) And, um, but there's still that pressure that you have to like live by yourself and, and have all of these accommodations, like having, you know, Mm -hmm. the great house and car and career that just aren't available to you anymore. And yet it's the, the reality just, doesn't reflect the dream 
in a way that I think didn't exist for my generation at all. Yeah. And the stakes are higher. I mean, like you said, like you come out of college with all this debt, I have debt and most of my peers have debt. Um, and it's this, all right, you got six months before you're going into repayment. Like, what are you going to do? You better, uh, better get on that. Like better find a job. And there's not a ton of great job opportunities. There's not a ton of, um, you know, resources for finding that. And you, are just pushed really hard, really fast into like real adult world. And the stakes are really high. You now have loans, you now have all of these things. You rent is astronomically high and, you know, we're way underpaid as like a generation and um, just looking at inflation, looking at how, how we as a generation are doing, like the stakes are really high and it's very hard. Um, It's, it's really hard. People don't know what to do. They feel lost. And then we're in the middle of an environmental crisis. And, you know, I know a lot of young people, a lot of people my age, neurotypical or neurodivergent are feeling really compelled to move to work that they are passionate about. And unfortunately, that work doesn't often pay very well. Mm -hmm. Um, So stakes are definitely higher as well. Yeah, that's nothing new. I (laughs) I remember it's not. But I do remember feeling like having this realization with my teenager recently where I was like, your generation is really the first who doesn't know if you're going to make it to adulthood. Like I sort of feel Absolutely. like there's this nihilism this that's in in all of your life decisions, right? Like I'm like, why have children? What is it? We're destroying the earth. Like there's an imminency to the, earth, to the destruction of the earth that didn't exist when I was in my teens and twenties. Yep. And so, you know, there was always that question of like, do I have children? Do I not? And we had all, obviously mm-hmm. as women had a lot more um, opportunities to, you know, there was less pressure to sort of be mm-hmm. a housewife and any of that. But like, I feel like with, with the new with a much younger generation, like this is really the first time where you face all of your life decisions with the sense of like, we may or may not make it, you know? And, and like, how does so that true. even, like, I was thinking of this out loud with my teenager and then I stopped mm-hmm. myself and I was like, God, am I like destroy? Like, I was like, should I even not mention this? <laughs> am I a bad mother? If I'm even mentioning that this reality exists, but like, I was like, how does that even affect any, you know, of the way you approach decisions, you know, like how does it approach saving money? You know, why bother? You know, how does it approach like working towards anything, you know, with that looming sense in the background of always just being like, well, we're fucked anyway. So what's the point? Yep. And that's like, like that defines their generation. Yeah. It does. And I, I don't know like how much of this is like ADHD. I do think I suspect some of it, but like, I get pretty infatuated with like these thought loops, you know, that rumination of like, oh my gosh, what are we doing? Like, what am I doing? Um, seeing that bigger systems connect, I think for me and and just my passions has been both a blessing and a curse because I feel like it's really propelled me to like push myself, get out of my comfort zone, like um, do more and like be better. But it also is this like very heavy weight to carry is like having so much pressure that you put on yourself and, um, you know, trying really hard to step back and not putting the weight of the world on yourself. And, and, you know, knowing that I will never as an individual, like right the wrongs and, and make 
make life. Um, what am I trying to say? That like justice, liberation, those like humanity components, they're not my, I cannot do that. I cannot right those wrongs as an mm-hmm. individual. That does not mean that I can be complacent. You know, there are absolutely things that I can do. And um, so it's definitely this like give and take of like, I am deeply passionate. I care so deeply, but then also being like, sometimes I'm like, I can't do this anymore. Like it's too much, you know, Mm -hmm. like I work in, um, I work in a nonprofit space, um, working to get young people engaged in politics and, um, really it's incredible. I couldn't do anything else. Like I'm so deeply passionate about it and, I feel very lucky to have a job that I like care so deeply for, um, and get to connect with like really amazing. My coworkers are amazing, like like like-minded peers, um, who push me, but it's also, I know we all really do struggle with like, it's heavy stuff. It's, it's not, uh, we, we care deeply and that's why we do this work. So it has mental health implications as well, for sure. Oh yeah. And I think that that is something you constantly like like you said, you're constantly riding that, you know, at what point is it too much? At what point do I really have to start thinking about self-preservation versus, you know, helping others and doing the work that not a lot of other people are are able to or willing to do. Mm-hmm. And so feeling mm-hmm. that calling, but also realizing that somehow that calling is leading to a sense of self-destruction that you feel absolutely. like you're implicit in. Yeah, Absolutely. And that savior complex too. Yeah, I like, know, right? Oh my God, there's so we, many interesting I think elements. We feel that pretty. I think heavy. we do, and I think, and I think people. I think because we are, yeah, because we think really, really deeply, and I think we are like really run by our emotions. Like it's, I love having a positive spin on ADHD, and I think there's so many wonderful qualities about it. But it is not a superpower. Like it just drives me crazy mm-hmm. when people like are dismiss the emotional gravity of life with ADHD and are sort of like, no, this is the greatest thing that ever happened to you. And like that toxic positivity just drives me crazy. And I certainly don't feel like, well, then you have to swing in the opposite direction and talk about how it's like a real, it's a disorder and we need to take it seriously. But I, you know, cause that bothers me too, (laughs) but I just feel like it's so nuanced. And, and that's why I feel like we kind of are, are figuring it out one conversation at a time, right? Of just being uh-huh. like, what is this happening and how do we deal with it? You're right that that's such a toxic approach. I mean, I know I definitely have skills. I have things about ADHD that I definitely like and make me a better person. But I think a lot of that comes from like, we really got to step back on that one and, and think about everyone's like power and privilege and the identities we hold and the space that we grew up in and the ways that we can succeed. And I know for me, like I am both, I, I'm, I'm very grateful, but I'm also very aware of like how my identity and my privilege growing up, like really did help me succeed and get to the uh, space that I'm in now. And that, you know, you could look at me and say like, oh, you're successful. You're like a successful person. And the, the metric that we use is, is just, it's so rooted in like, what export we put out, like how productive we are for society. And, you know, even in school, like really marking students for, for things that are, you know, just training them to be good workers and, and 
get things done and productivity and productivity and the output and this and not about the means, not about how we're doing it, what we're getting there. And so like, I mean, I think, yeah, there's, there's definitely a bunch of skills. I've also struggled very greatly, but you know, I grew up where my parents could afford to send me to tutoring and they would help me. And my brother could uh, get put into a private school because they could afford that. Um, I grew up in a pretty moderately wealthy, like white suburban home. And like, how did that, when I had those really impulsive outbursts and I got in trouble um, in a, you know, bigger way than just being reactive in class or something, I was given a pass because, you know, I'm, I'm like, oh, she's like a cute white woman. She's like a sweet, you know, like all these things we put on women and we put on whiteness and we put on um, the, the passes that we give to mm-hmm. uh, people because of their identities. Like, I, I do think, I hate hearing that, like, oh, it's a superpower. Cause I just think like how much of, of that mindset comes from the accommodations able, that you have yeah, in your life. Yeah, yeah absolutely. that other people don't have. And, mm-hmm. and I just think we kind of need to step back on that and be like, okay, um, we all work hard. That's true. We all are struggling, but like some of us have different tools and different resources. And I think that gets minimized when you start talking about that, um, that approach. Yeah, no, that's a great point. When I was diagnosed with ADHD, it completely turned my world upside down. I looked back at so much of my life, my grades in school, my multiple careers and hobbies, my friendships, my marriage, motherhood, my relationship with food or my body, like all of this with a new lens. And it was overwhelming to say the least. If you've been diagnosed with ADHD and you're feeling blown away by this new insight into your brain and how it operates, I totally understand. I can help you begin to sort through this chaos, explore who you are and how your brain operates so you can finally start to lean into your strengths and begin to use them to your advantage moving forward. Together, we can work to identify what obstacles you've been facing and create strategies to help you start living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. Head over to womeninadhd.com coaching to book a 30-minute initial consult with me so we can figure out if my brand of one-on-one coaching is right for you. Again, that's womeninadhd.com coaching, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. Okay, so... One thing I like to ask my guests is if you could mm-hmm. rename ADHD to something that's a little less con- confounding or problematic. Mm-hmm. Have you thought about what you would, yeah. co- what would you might call it? Yes, I have. And I've thought about this like even before, uh, before this question was posed because I've never really felt like that ADHD like label fits. Um, I mean, it does in a million ways, but it also doesn't. Um, I, I don't have a name. I will say, but I, I wrote down regulation. Cause I think that's a key thing. I think that's a key misunderstanding and a misconsensus. And I think, um, something that has to do with processing something that has to do with regulation. I think those are my, uh, that's the direction I would go, um, for renaming it because I know I just, they, I don't have a deficit of attention. Like, you know, (laughs) I really don't. It's just that I can't regulate it. I can't um, get myself always to do what I know needs to be done. Or even sometimes I don't remember what I need to be doing that needs to be done. It's, it's bigger than that 
it's bigger than not having that mm-hmm. um, focus piece. Um, yeah. Well, and like you said, it's it really doesn't hit home until you start factoring in, or once you start really understanding the emotional aspects and the sensory processing, right? Where you're like, mm-hmm. those were the two things that really hit home for me. So the fact that mm-hmm. neither sensory or emotional is mm-hmm. mentioned in the DSM or even in the in the name itself, I find just sends people down the wrong rabbit holes. <laughs> I love thinking about how by the time you're 45, you know, how much more will we know about this neuro yeah. about neurodiversity and how many more accommodations will we see in the classrooms Absolutely. or in our workplaces? And hopefully Absolutely. this pandemic and working from home has blown up a bit of that like nine to five narrative that so many of us struggled with so much. And that mm-hmm. you know, it'll leave open this idea that like everybody has their own productivity windows and everybody yes. works differently. And that we can yes. we can accommodate for all of those. There's not Absolutely. like that worker, that industrialized worker mentality. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> of course. I, I you're preaching to the choir here. <laughs> Awesome. All right. Well, I will um, look forward to seeing how it goes over the next 20 years. But <laughs> Thank you. Meantime. Me too. A little bit of eminent, eminent doom mixed with, we'll see what happens. <laughs> uh, we're rolling with it. So. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, thanks again, Regan. It was it. lovely to talk to you. And there you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. Also, you know, we ADHDers crave feedback and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. If you're a fan of the podcast, please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I get it, then just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating. Or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may still be struggling and don't even know why. And if you'd like to find out more about me and my one-on-one coaching for women with ADHD, head over to womenandadhd.com slash coaching. And you can always find that link in the show notes. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered that she is not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD and she is now on the path to understanding her neurodiversity and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then.